So Josh, we, we, thanks for coming today. We wanted to um, wanted to kind of sit down and talk to you about entrepreneurship, how you got started in business, um, and kind of why you took a chance on Tabby from the beginning. Okay. So let's let's take it back to where were you born, how, and then and go from there. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in Australia, okay. uh, suburb outside of Sydney. Uh, grew up. Did schooling there, uh, and then somewhere. I mean, I've been skiing since I was two years old. So, and and we would come over here a good bit to ski. Um, I had family that lived over here. I've just always kind of had an epiphany for for the United States, and always loved it. And figured that someday I'd probably spend a little bit of time over here at the very least. Um, and then we were in Aspen skiing one year, and that was when I first saw my first snowboard, and I was like, what is that? That's cool. <laughs> um, so that that started a, a love and a passion for a sport. I think I was 14 at the time. Um, all of a sudden, one week, a year wasn't enough time to, <laughs> to go skiing anymore. It was like every weekend we were trying to get down there. And so that rounded out the end of my, my high school kind of stint and afterwards I decided I wanted to kind of have a go at my snowboarding career a little bit things were happening pretty good for me in that so I moved down to our mountains our local mountains and uh, started snowboarding professionally and uh, yeah one of the things that happens when you're snowboarding is you need to be off during the day uh, this was back in the early 90s so snowboarding wasn't a big thing at the time so we had to definitely supplement our funds uh and that was mainly working in restaurants yeah uh, which was another passion of mine i love cooking i've always loved food i've always loved cooking um so yeah we'd work restaurants at hunt and snowboard all day um which kind of got me into that restaurant business and then that's also what brought me over to the united states is uh our seasons are opposite. So we would ski or snowboard from June through October in Australia, <laughs> and then we'd work till about December, and then around January, we'd jump on a plane and come over here. So, so, so let me ask you something. Was that yeah. prior to coming to America to snowboard and ski, you were already wakeboarding, surfing? You were I doing was that. doing a little bit of skateboarding. Um, a little bit of rugby, a little bit of tennis, a little bit of everything. Uh, my dad was a big surfer. I was never big into the surf. I'm not really a beach kind of guy. But my my love for the sport came from skiing. Um, what were some of the biggest uh, competitions you were able to compete in? Uh, we did – I mostly competed in Australia, so all of the national competitions in Australia. Cool. So back then I think my highest ranking was six in Australia which oh, nice. I was pretty proud of. Yeah. Um, but more than that, it was just a group of guys that ended up being a brotherhood for life that, you know. Still friends with them? Yeah, absolutely. They'll be friends of mine till the day I die. We don't speak very often and don't get to see them, but if I go back to Australia, they're the group of guys I'm going to go find and have a beer with. It's like you never sure. left when um, you come back. Pardon? It's like you never left when you come back. Yeah, and the, the yeah. cool part was is when we would leave, we'd all go to different parts of the world. So some would go to Europe, some would, you know, even if we were all coming uh, – to the states like my home base was Breckenridge a lot of the guys were in Squaw Valley uh, a lot went up to Whistler up in Canada and so we'd be apart for 
you know, five months and then we'd get back and it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I can't wait to see who's coming. <laughs> it's like, oh, this guy's coming tomorrow. I can't wait to see him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how your best friends and you're really out of contact for that long amount of time. The other fun part was seeing how much they improved and who improved the most. And yeah, so it was a fun thing. But again, that led to um, me spending more time over here. And well, then, in, re- in restaurants. Yeah, and, and in restaurants, uh, in and out a little bit. Um, kind of just. What was your first restaurant on. job? Uh, dishwashing uh, at a little Italian restaurant. Apparently, I didn't do a good job. This guy had a <laughs> he had a book that had a list of about twenty kids on it. This was down at a ski resort, so of course it's like unreliable. But he was meticulous, um, and I picked up a gig. It was a cash gig washing dishes. So that's that's kind and of he the, never called me back. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good indicator. <laughs> that's kind of the journey that I want to I want to go through with you today. Is like. It, the story always starts there. Yeah. Anybody that's been successful in business as an entrepreneur that works for themselves successfully has has started as that dishwasher. Right. And has had the lessons learned and been kicked along the way many times. Absolutely. And <clears throat> uh, one of the things that really was fortunate for me is I'd mentioned we had family that lived over here. So my uncle and aunt and their kids all lived in Chicago. Uh, he was in the steel business, and when he left, he left with a non-compete clause, um, and they moved back to Australia. So for two or three years, he couldn't get into the steel business, which is what he's been doing his whole life. Um, so we had to figure something out. He got a great settlement from his job and had a bunch of money, and his kids loved Fuddruckers. So he opened up Fuddruckers franchise in Australia, and three Fuddruckers, two in Queensland, one in Sydney. Uh, they lived in Queensland. But he sent his two sons, my two cousins, down to open up and run the uh, Sydney one. And at the time, that was the busiest five rockers on the planet. Um, it oh, was wow. insane. Uh, but my two cousins, who are also two of my best friends in the world, they were running it. So I just, they were totally fine with me. It was great. Really fortunate to have a job where you could come back from overseas for five months and just slip right in and work for two months before you leave and then go down to our mountains <laughs> and then come back in October and work for four months <laughs> before we leave to go to the States again. But I did that for about four years and man, it totally ticked off all the people I worked with. <laughs> yeah, but it allowed you to do what you love to do. It allowed me to do what I love to do. And it also, having my, my cousins running that restaurant um, and it being so busy, it gave me an insight to the inner workings of the restaurant. So that was probably the most important job, which is weird to say, just flipping burgers. Uh, but I started out as the butcher there and worked my way up, fry guy, and then I was the head grill cook. So as the dishwasher or butcher, mm-hmm. like, did you see yourself where you are today, right? That's always the question. It's like no one sees themselves as a dishwasher and says, I'm going to run not necessarily i knew deep down my father owned his own advertising agency so i'd seen uh, you know i'd grown up looking at him um and seeing how he lived his life and the successes he had in his own being an entrepreneur and i just always had that in me i just always people think you just land in a in a special place and you get lucky and trip into something but i mean i tried I tried probably a hundred different ideas and thoughts and some of them I didn't even try. It just came to me and I was like, this would be cool if we did that. And then you start thinking about it. It's like, no, that's really stupid (laughs) 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 or or whatever it be. Right. So, um, 
yeah, it, it's just always been in the back of my head. I don't want to work for someone else. I just, I want to, it's that creative outlet and, yeah. you know. Can you learn to be an entrepreneur or are you born with it? I believe you're born with it. I don't know. I, I've had so many conversations with people that don't need to be in business on their own. And I, I'm as honest as I possibly so, can. So that's interesting, right? Like, we think about that a lot. Right. Are you born with it? Is it something you can acquire? And wh- why do you think it's that way? Why do you feel like you have to be born with it? It's Some people just don't have it in them. And What's it? So, for example, I had a friend. He was in the construction business. And, you know, love the guy. He's a great guy. And he's good at what he did. Uh, but he needed that leadership and that direction. And he sat down, we sat down for an hour at Bali's one day and he was asking me about, you know, I want to be out my own, I want to start my own business, I want to do this. And I was just sitting there going, no, dude. No, and you knew, no, you, knew no. you knew right away. Yeah, I was like, you know, specifically with him, I was like, you would be a red hot mess. You can't even manage your own household, let alone <laughs> managing a business. Sure. And, and there's a lot of people like that. There's also a lot of people that, don't want to do that. They mm-hmm. don't want the responsibility or the risk. Um, you know, I got plenty of other friends. I'm like, ah, oh, you've got a great little business going on the side, just doing side work. Why don't you start go out on your own? And they're like, not a chance. Just don't want to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a small so, percentage that actually want to do it. Yeah, it really is. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to sit there and specifically say you can learn it or you can't learn it, but you've got to have the drive and you've got to have the tenacity and you've got to really have the want because it's a lot of hard work and it's, it's not a easy. lot of hard work to reap the benefits of what you get. But, you know, I, I'm three restaurants in and I'm rocking strong, driving a Maserati, living in a nice house and I've got it all figured out and 20, 20 years of just success and great. And I'm just sitting there going, nothing can topple this. And now we're sitting here 18 months after the pandemic and struggling to stay alive. So. Yeah. So I want, I want to dive into that. So briefly tell us how you ended up at Barley's, how the acquisition of the three restaurants you have now kind of happened. And then, yeah. and then we'll jump into the, the <laughs> pandemic again. How much time do we have? <laughs> as long as you want to, man. So, um, yeah. So it came to a time, a lot of my friends in the snowboarding industry were three or four years older than me. I was the grommet. So (laughs) they never actually called me that. So I think I got away with that. Not to your face. Yeah, I don't think they knew. (laughs) It was funny. We used to call these kids grommets and they were two years older than me. (laughs) I'd be like, yeah, grommet. Anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, They all had kind of apprenticeships or college degrees or family businesses that they could fall back on. And I was just getting older and I don't know if you know, but around the age of 20, your bones turn from bendy and rubbery to very <laughs> brittle and snappy. Um, and the sport started progressing at such a rapid speed that it was, you know, a lot of the videos came out and every popular section of a video, no matter what it is, skateboarding, motocross, it's the accident section. And so people started designing the jumps and half pipes and all yeah. the things bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, and you're watching your friends getting carted off the hospital with ruptured spleens and broken legs. And mm-hmm. it just kind of at, at 
21, 22, it kind of became, huh, I probably should have a backup plan because, you know, we missed, we missed the real successful, you know, we like to say that we set up the snowboarding industry for the success of all the kids today. Um, but we obviously were not going to have that kind of major success. So it was either get a job within the industry, but I didn't, you know, I even, I was like, I'm going to apply and work for Burton. And I had a business degree at that point and they just, I was like, I'm an ex-professional snowboarder and I got a business degree. I'm going to work at Burton. And nah, what be part of the marketing team? Or, yeah. Or it's like, and that's, well, not a terrible, that's not a terrible That's a great plan. job. It, it right? is. I would have loved it. But, you know, when you call, that's not enough. Like, yeah. you know, they're not looking for so even snowboarders. Your, they're looking for marketing, professional marketers. And it just progressed is, that far. Um, yeah. It's like the beer business now. It's like it used to be, oh, I'm a bartender. Can I work at the brewery as a salesperson? I've got a good personality. Sure, but now it's Excel spreadsheets and it's all it's analytics. It's yeah. analytics and yeah. whatnot. So, um, hmm. see, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself, but I wanted to go to school. Figured out that if I went to school and convinced my parents, if I went to school in Colorado, <laughs> um, I was in classes four days a week, uh, which gave me three days a week to drive up to Breckenridge, in which I had friends yeah. and a place to stay, um, and I could keep snowboarding over there, and then summer break over here. Is our winter season down there, so I'd move home and compete to keep my sponsors happy. Um, so that was the plan. It was a terrible plan. Um, <laughs> lasted 12 months, uh, but it wound me up in school in Colorado. And I met my wife out there, and we decided to get married. And we had kind of toyed around with the idea of maybe moving back to Australia and living down there. Um, so she's from Australia? No, she's from Louisiana. Okay. Um, but you know, we were young, it was like, hey, we don't really have any money over here. Let's I'll, go, I'll go to Australia over there. Louisiana, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, her family, uh, her parents lived in North Carolina half the year, and uh, her sister was in Columbia. We were like, well, let's move somewhere closer to them so we can have that interaction with them before we move to Australia and don't see them for a while. And so, we found Greenville and we moved to Greenville. Um, and then after we got married, I got my green card and then I was able to work and she was working as a hostess at Sobeys. Um, I had passion still for cooking. I was still in school and that's the thing. I was mm. doing 13 hours at school at North Greenville college, which is a 40 minute drive. So I'd wake up at eight in the morning, drive up there, yeah. do my classes, take a nap in my car between classes, drive back. And before I had my green card, I was working at a nightclub as a door guy checking IDs. So I'd go into work at 11, work till four in the morning, go to bed, up at eight, back to class. The grind. And it's it's the grind. And that's what it takes. You know, yeah. I think that was a good learning experience for me and what it takes to to follow your dreams and build them. So, yeah, I got my green card and then I started working as a line cook at Sobeys for about two years. I worked my way up there. And, yeah, that again, at school all day and then in at three and out at midnight. What was the bar scene like in Greenville at that time? Um, it was weird. It was very weird. So we're talking 99, 2000. Um, there was no late night bars. I think everything closed at midnight. So you had private clubs back then. So if you wanted to go to any bar mm -hmm. after midnight, you had to be a member at that bar or you had to be with a member. So 
We just made sure all our friends were a member at one, and then we all just go together and just sign in. But you it was just, I was loose. just about to say you had to sign you had to in. Sign in, and it was very loose. You just That's what made you a member, in and no one ever checked it whether you remember or not. So um, it was weird, but it was cool. I mean, Greenville was so small back then; there really weren't too many restaurants or bars in Greenville, and they all basically went from the Peace Center to College Street at the top of the hill. That was it. So you had. You know, restaurant-wise, it was Sobeys, Barley's, um, but we didn't have the pool room at Barley's at that time. So it was just bands, which was so loud, it was annoying. What do you What do you think caused them? I mean, it's been a massive growth in the last 10 years. Yeah. What, what, what do you so. think caused that? And I know the city worked very diligently at it. and Marketing. Up until, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I didn't know this, but I had a friend of mine about two or three years ago, went up to New York and was riding the subway and got off the subway in New York City. And there was a huge billboard in the subway that said, yeah, that Greenville. So when you're advertising <laughs> to New York City, I mean, you wonder why this influx of people from big cities is coming yeah. in. It's because of that marketing. But I also know they did a great job in the growth early on. They were going and visiting other cities all around the country that had this great unique size. Um, and they were studying how do we grow it, um, you know, in a specific rate, uh, which they did great. And then the recession hit and we were indestructible. We were one of the top five yeah. least affected cities in the country. And they were advertising. Cost the of living, mm -hmm. outdoors. And I think a lot of that, in my opinion, spans to the fact that there's so much European money in this city with BMW and Michelin. So while we were having mm. a recession here, a lot of the income was coming from overseas still uh which was still continuing to drive our economy but after that i feel like the city felt like oh we're indestructible let's go and they just kind of threw caution to the wind i remember at one point i went to colorado and my buddy hadn't been here for a long time he was asking how greenville was he used to live here and i said i counted the cranes in greenville on my way to the airport and at the time there were 12 cranes up in greenville um it was insane so it, it's changed immensely in the last 20 years, but especially in the last 10. Um, you think for the better? Yeah, no. Yeah. A little bit of both. Yeah. Um, definitely. It's, it's an interesting. That's a hard question to answer. So what, what year did you start working at Barley's, and then what year did you buy Barley's? So, yeah, I, I, I stayed at uh, Sobeys for two years cooking. And then I finished my business degree, graduated with my degree in business administration. Uh, my wife had left Sobeys and moved, and she took a job at Barley Sweet Tables. Um, and she got pregnant with our first child, like the day she started, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> of um, course. So she worked there about seven months or eight months while she was pregnant. Um, and then I was still at Sobeys, but I was looking. We, our desire was always to open a restaurant. Um, but we didn't want to live that lifestyle with raising a family. So the goal was I'll go get a job doing something else with my business degree. And then eventually, you know, when the kids are old enough and leaving home, we can open up a restaurant and do our dream thing. Um, that changed very quickly. So it, the bar manager job at Barley's became available, um, right after my daughter was born 
And I was like, that's an easy gig. So that was in 2003. Can um, I ask you something? Mm-hmm. There's a role, there's like romanticizing about opening restaurants. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to be this big thing. Like we'll, we'll have a lot of fun. It's going to be, but it's hard work. Oh, it's terrible. So you mentioned something about like raising kids in that environment. Like you knew from the jump that that, that's not going to work. No, I mean. And you had to wait for that dream. Yes, that was the decision we made because it was just, I mean, we knew we'd be working around the clock 24 hours a day, just working long, terrible shifts. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't really an option when you're trying to bring two kids into the world. So hmm. we, uh, this bar manager gig opened up and all my experience in the restaurants were in back of house. And I was like, if eventually I'm going to run one, I need to try it on. So I just took that job as kind of a stepping stone while I was looking for another job. And I remember I was like, my dad's in advertising, so I'll go sit in an interview in advertising. I sat in that room, I looked like the biggest idiot on the planet. She was asking <laughs> these specific questions. I had no idea the answers to. I looked like an idiot and I was like, I can't work for these people, I'm not doing it. And I don't know, I started working there and then after about six months, we we're having a lot of issues with our general manager and so, the day my second child was born, so that was uh, 2004, that was 17 months apart, so it was a quick shift. I called the owners, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore, and nor is your other manager. We're not working for this GM. It's like, I don't want his position, I don't want the job, it's not what this is about. But unless you guys come down and take care of this or figure it out, then you're gonna be looking for two new managers. So they came down a couple of weeks later, fired the GM, promoted me to GM, so within like nine months, I was the GM and I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> um, kind of like this podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly right. But the, yeah, the, I kept calling the owners. They hadn't given me a raise. I, like, So how like, old are you? Yeah, how old are you at this I'm time? 40, I'm 46 now. So back then I would have been 25, 26, maybe. 26. What were you probably. doing at 25 years old? <laughs> I was transitioning to well, leaving the army, transitioning to Waffle House. Okay. I mean, he was running. You know what the crazy ironic part That's is? Wild. I think I was making twenty eight thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. To run that restaurant, it was just a beautiful. <laughs> but I kept calling him, telling him you got to come down, like, because the old manager hadn't paid any bills. I had a stack of papers, you know, this big, um, and I just didn't know what to do with them. So, but the owners wouldn't come down. Finally, they came down, and I met him at a restaurant at the Brick Street, you know, the Brick Store. I had all this paperwork. I'm like, I'm going to ask him what I'm going to do. He sat down and said, so we're selling the restaurant. I was like, what the hell? And um, I was sitting there going, okay, I'm going to drop that on the floor. And I was like, well, where does that leave me sort of thing? And he said, well, we, we are putting in that there is a 10%, 10% ownership clause. Um, for you, it's an investment group that's going to buy the restaurant. We've got three investment groups. None of them know how to operate a restaurant. They want you to stay on and run it for them. Um, and you'll get 10% of the business. And I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, my dreams just came true. I just like you became an owner. Well. Yeah. And I was like, this is going to be amazing. And I said, what do I need to do? And he's like, well, I'm going to send these people in. They need to facilitate, you need to facilitate them, give them whatever they ask for walking through the numbers and QuickBooks and everything and go from there. So I went home to the wife. I was so happy and I was like, yeah, this is awesome. We're going to own a restaurant and da 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 da. 
Then I started doing the math on it and I was like, 10% of nothing is nothing. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is terrible. This is, I'm going to be doing 100% of the work for 10% of the share. And that just didn't sit well with me and it just ate me up. So I called them back and I said, can I throw my name in the hat for it? You know, what would that do? And they were so excited about it because they were lovely guys that wanted to keep it in the family sort of thing. So they were very generous because they knew I couldn't get the money they were asking for it. They had debt to pay off, so they would be 100% out of their debt in Asheville. And so they needed X amount of dollars. I think it was like 320000 to pay off their debt. They financed 100000 of it. And so I only had to get a loan for that three hundred, um, And then they financed the rest of it, and I just paid them each month directly to them to pay it off. Um, it was very hard finding a loan at 27 years old. No one wanted to take a shot on me or anything. Mm -hmm. um, what was that process like? Terrifying. Yeah. Actually. But at the same time, you know, we, we talked it over. And it's like we've got a six-month-old baby. We just bought our house. It's our first house. It was 160 grand. And it's like we, we didn't have any equity in it whatsoever, really. And it's like, what happened? Like we go belly up. We lose a house that we right. have no equity in. The kids won't even remember it because they're so young. And we just start over. And we're no worse off than we were a month ago. So the timing there was fantastic. So so that's special. Yeah. And that, that, I mean, that limited the risk. Yeah. Definitely. So we talked about entrepreneurship. Like that ability to just stomach that risk. Mm -hmm. A lot of people wouldn't because it's Ter too it's much. It's terrifying. Yeah. So one of my best friends um, just opened a... Uh, a golf gym in Manhattan. Basically, he's got simulation machines up there. Uh, and you know with the rent in Manhattan, I mean, it's just insane. And he signed his last paperwork like two days before the pandemic took out the city. But he called me so many times in that process, just like, beeps, what do I do here? What do I do there? But a lot of the time it was just like, mm -hmm. dude, I just don't know if I'm doing the right thing, especially with the pandemic. And I've told him and I've told so many other people. I was like, the only thing different between an entrepreneur and someone with really good ideas. Mm -hmm. And this maybe goes back and says, can you learn to be an entrepreneur? There are a lot of people that have great ideas mm -hmm. and they've got the resources and they could be very successful. But what I told Scotty, I was like, you've, you've done it, mate. You've walked to the edge of the cliff. Now you just got to jump. And that's what a lot of people, that's where a lot of people can get to, but they can't step off. And that's the risk. Yeah. That's all, you know, all of a sudden I could lose everything. And I'm talking about a guy who's got a wife and four kids and a house in New York and doing great. And his step off that cliff, he had a lot more to lose than I did the first right. time I did it. So so what was that like to stomach that? Like I said, it was a little easier, I think, for me than other people that have a lot more to lose, um, which I now know that feeling because I've done it two more times and definitely had a lot more to lose. Um, so when did Barley's was the first? Yeah. So I bought Barley's in December. I took over ownership, full ownership of Barley's December 1st, 2003. Okay. Um, it had been open since 1996. Um, so we just celebrated this year our 25th anniversary. Congrats. Um, so yeah, I've always you. referred to it as the iconic Barley's. <laughs> yeah. It's such an it icon. yeah. So it's, um, it's been there a long while. Um, 
It was a great brand. It was just lacking. And I think one of the other reasons that I was able to get it is because I had um, been running it for 18 months. And a lot of these investment groups who don't know the restaurant industry, they were looking at numbers going, this doesn't add up. Right. Now, I knew that the old GM was stealing cigarettes and people were stealing beer and just walking out with whatever they wanted. I knew that we weren't selling any merchandise whatsoever, and I suggested to the owners we need to change up the T-shirts and do these things. You, you saw opportunity. Yeah, and I was trying to tell them we need yeah. to do this. And the, the biggest thing that, that we did is we had these live bands. And so when I first moved to Greenville, before the pool room, it was basically a music venue and a pizza joint with craft beer. And, I mean, I walked in there, and we went there after work some nights to listen to the band. And you literally could not hold a conversation between sitting as close as we are without screaming. Hmm. The acoustics in that building are terrible. And I told the owners, we've got to get rid of the bands, we've got to get rid of the bands. Because I would sit in the sound booth and I'd mm -hmm. watch the minute the bands would start, the restaurant would empty out. And on a Friday and Saturday night, you got a full restaurant and within 10 minutes, it's empty. Yeah. Um, but they kept telling me, hey, it works in Asheville, so it's, got, it's your, something you're doing wrong. And I'm like, no, the demographic in Greenville is completely different to the demographic in Asheville. So... It worked for them originally, but as places started growing and other music venues came out, it just, Bali's turned from a music venue more into the restaurant side and the bar. And they built the pool room and that kind of went. So when I came in. What was above Barley's before the pool room? Just the empty room. Okay. Yeah, it was just big empty room, I guess. The pool room was in there by the time I started working there. It had opened the year before. So. So let's kind of let's kind of fast forward to well real quick yeah. I will say just to kind of to finish up where we started with the kids and the family and the yeah, risk and all sure. that um, so yeah the risk again was was a lot easier for me because I had the answers I could convince the bankers why the numbers didn't add up I right. could tell them exactly why and in my business plan it was all about what I'm going to do to change those bad numbers mm hmm but the most important part is, is that restaurant is seven days a week. It is manager gets in at nine, manager leaves at four in the morning. It is physically and literally impossible for any one person to be in that building 24-7. So immediately off the get, I had been running that restaurant for 18 months. I knew everyone that was in that building. I knew everything about everyone. We had cleaned up the huge cocaine problem. We had kicked everyone out. We cleaned up the restaurant. And I had all these ideas that I was presenting to the owners that didn't want to make any of the changes. So I was able to convince the banks. We got the money. We then went and opened. And the thing is, I trusted the team that I'd built. And I already had all the ideas and all the improvements in place and all lined up. So I knew that I could trust my staff and especially my managers. And I knew that I couldn't be there 24-7. So I just didn't. And that's where I started implementing this trust system that I still run with. I'm not a micromanager. I, I'm a macro guy. Empower your people to do their job brilliantly. You know, if they've got an issue with a table, handle your issue. Fix it. If it's escalating and you can't fix it, come find a manager and we'll go take care of it. But if you can fix it on your own, fix it. So sometimes one of the best lessons in leadership is the ability to turn it off. Yeah. To show to show your team that, hey, I need you to turn it off just like I do. Mm -hmm. Because burnout's a real thing. 
Then that's a big more, thing. More so in the restaurant industry, I think, than probably any industry. Yeah. There was one year my general manager, I didn't give him a raise that year. I gave him an extra week. Yeah. I was just, you, you, two weeks it's worth more than the money. Me. Yeah. So that's the new trend yeah. today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you read all these, these Fortune 500 companies who are giving employees off just a week off paid. Yeah. It doesn't go against their PTO. Nope. They get to use it and just basically it's just a recovery time. Yeah. Which yeah, I think Nike did it. There's a couple of co- couple of people that did it recently. So that was the thing is, is this restaurant was established. It was there. So, you know, when we move on to the trapdoor, I mean, that was a three-year just grind. It was terrible. Um, Can you talk about but, the inspiration for the trapdoor? Yeah. I, I mean, we love it. He's, well, it's, so Bali's is very much renowned for its beer selection, right? right. And prior to, I want to say it was 2006, roughly around 2006, we had one of the old blue laws in South Carolina, which you couldn't sell any malt beverage over 6% alcohol. So we were operating with one hand behind our back. We couldn't get anything into the state unless it was bought in illegally, which we mm. played with a little bit of that. Um, because the sled doesn't always come in looking for it, so some of the distributors are willing to like take some risk. But I'm risking seven percent, you know. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, we were really operating with one hand, and I was reaching out to all these breweries across the nation that are blowing up, like Stone and Dogfish Head, and we were in negotiations with getting them to come to the state. And they're like, "Hey, you move that six percent thing, we'll be there the next day." So there was a large group of people trying to do this pop the cap thing um, where they were rallying for campaigns. Yeah. And, and trying to get, you know, Columbia to change the rules. Um, and we had a big pop the cap party going on in the pool hall upstairs. And meanwhile, I was downstairs at a table with Don Richardson, who uh, owns quest, but um, at the time was importing yeah. Belgian beers in a Belgian beer importing business. And one of our big, Two, uh, two of the owners of one of the biggest distributors that we worked with. And Don just explained, hey, Belgian beer equals this and your profits equal that. And they're just going, shit, this is this got to happen. And so everyone's up there drinking, like, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. I feel like he's talking about the prohibition. Oh, we had, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we like had that meeting. Uh, we had that meeting and we were pouring, you know, 12% beers because they had, that distributorship was so big. One of the brothers was an attorney, lives in Columbia, and he was he was their guy that he would push paperwork down there and get things changed and done. So he was their lobbyist. Um, he, they looked at each other and said, you know, you should be able to get this done, don't you think? And he was like, yeah. They got it pushed through in a week. I mean, there was a little momentum because of what Pop the Cap did, but it all comes down to money at the end, I guess. So, so yeah, what that, that not only did it bring in a whole slew of breweries and that was one of the funnest years we had and we made so much money because every week we were launching these big breweries from around the country that was 2007 i think it was six or seven um yeah and it was we had a great time but the one thing that i realized is these belgian beers they're so good they're just amazing i love them i have a passion for them and i kept looking out there and with the flood of all these beers, people kept going back to the Belgians. But we only had a small selection of ones that are very recognizable. As we started getting access to some more obscure stuff and mm-hmm. some really, really fancy, nice stuff, 
And we started getting draft beers and we'd put it up on a wall with 39 taps and they would just disappear. Wow. And we were doing events for Allagash, one of the top breweries in the country. And like one person showed up. I'm like, what is going on? This is insane. And I knew people were drinking it. I was watching it, but it wasn't growing within the market of itself. Um, and at the time I knew I wanted to open a new restaurant because I got to change Bali's. I got to build it and grow it. And I got that, but I didn't get the satisfaction of the right. ground up creation. Um, that's my brainchild. And so we jumped on a plane, flew over to Belgium, spent nine days visiting breweries and eating at restaurants, checking out the food. What an and, amazing trip. And yeah, it was great. We had a good time. Yeah. I'm um, sure Brussels is a, is a good time. And I got home and there was a building, the building that Husk is currently in. Mm. It just looks so European and it's such yeah. a gorgeous building. And I don't know why they haven't done it, but that little, it's kind of like one story and two stories. I was like, I'm going to put tables and chairs up yeah. on a rooftop there and it's going to yeah. be amazing. And I looked at that and at the time, so this was, you know, 11, 12, 13 years ago. The building was going for over a million dollars and I was like, that's insane. So we were just, I was kind of brainstorming um, and my GM at the time, they quit smoking in restaurants. So he, we wouldn't let him smoke in the office. So he, he quit. No, he set up a little. <laughs> <laughs> so where Trapdoor is now, oops, excuse me. Let me shut that. So where, uh, where the Trapdoor is now, um, used to just be a big empty basement. And because it's, the building wasn't sprinkled, uh, the fire department wouldn't let us use it. Right. So it was just abandoned. Uh, the landlords kept trying to rent it out, but no mm -hmm. one was like, everyone was like, I'm not going to put a business a in basement. there. No one's ever going to know what it exists. Um, but again, I think it was a unique opportunity. What we saw, so I was down there, he moved a desk down there and he just worked down there on his laptop so he could <laughs> smoke in the basement. It was right next to the fire exit. No one ever knew. And you could always find him down there smoking. So... <laughs> I would spend a fair few meetings down there because that's where he'd want to hold all his meetings and I'm like, cool, whatever. So we would, um, we would, yeah, I was down there one day a couple of weeks after I got back from Belgium and I realized that every one of our favorite restaurants and bars in um, Belgium were all under the ground and they all had low ceilings and it was all about the character and it's just gorgeous and it's dark and it's dingy and I was so like. So the light bulb went off. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, and that was the beginning of the recession. A lot of my guys' day jobs got laid off, so I'd pay them 10 bucks an hour to go rip the drywall and sheetrock off and do all the things. And next thing you know, the bones were there, and I was like, holy crap, this place is awesome. So we, um, I'd gone to Australia for my brother's wedding, and on his bachelor party, we went out, we went go karting and mini golf, and then we went. <laughs> to his favorite restaurant, just happened to Typical be. Typical bachelor party. Right. <laughs> uh, but we went to his favorite restaurant, which happened to be a Belgian restaurant. Um, and we all sat around this tiny table. It was packed, it was busy. Everyone's on top of you. And they brought out this pot of mussels and we opened it up and I'm like, everyone's using their fingers. Everyone's happy. You're drinking high alcohol beers. The vibe in that place just spoke to me and I was just like, this is it. Um, because to me, Eating out at a restaurant is about fellowship. It is a time to go hang with friends, time to talk. You know, I don't go out to a restaurant and sit there in silence and eat my food. Um, so that was what really inspired me about the Belgian cuisine is yeah. it's very, it was very social, social. 
So I can, I've been to all three of your places, mm-hmm. and I, I can definitely attest to that being a reality at all three. Like, so it's, it's like the fellowship, it's, it's a, you know, you got long tables. I think when I go to Barley's, I mean, it just, it feels very communal. When you yeah. walk in there, it feels open and friendly. Burroughs the same way. And then Trapdoor, it's, it's such a different place than any other bar or restaurant in Greenville that, uh, I mean, we love it. We, I mean, it's, it's we may go there tonight. I mean, it's, I'm thinking about it right now. Yeah, steak, steak like that. That. I was just thinking, I'm like, what am I ordering? No, but it's like that. You have to have that soul. Yeah, like of your restaurant. So, right? so what? What an interesting kind of progression to that vision to then be in a pandemic. Yeah. So it's, that. So let's kind of transition to that. Time, you know, March of 2020. That was March 27th was probably the worst day of my life. We decided to have a meeting and I'd never done this before, but we wanted to have a meeting that was pretty important and everyone needed to be there. Rather than do it three times, we said, let's all meet at Bali's. It's big enough to hold the whole team. So that was the very first time I had all my staff from the entire company in one room. And that was, wow. That was a wow moment. I mean, you know how big Bali's is and that dining room was packed. To sit there and see what 110 people looks like on paper, it's like, oh, yeah, normal. It's a line, I- line item. Yeah. And, but Different. I go into each restaurant and it's a family kind of setting. Yeah. Everyone loves each other and it's all great. And it's di- everyone knows everyone's name. And then you put them all together and it's like, Holy crap, I'm responsible for all of these people. Yeah, it's huge. Th- 30 to 40 people at one time mm-hmm. is different than all of them. Yeah, it was very overwhelming for me. Um, so you're standing in front of them at arguably the darkest moment in the history of restaurants. Well, we didn't recent know at mess- the time. Yes. Recent yes. history. Yes. And that discussion was, we think this is about to happen. We think it's coming. Um, we're not 100% sure. So I believe that was a Tuesday. I remember sitting at my bar on Saturday night at the borough. The worst news comes on Tuesday. Packed. Yeah. <laughs> but the bar was absolutely packed. And I'm sitting there talking with my regulars and they're like, oh, this is bullshit. This isn't happening. It's not going to, it's stupid. What, I don't think even masks were a thing back then. They're like, this is just going to blow over. It's just the flu. It's not going to, don't worry about it. Then by Sunday, people were talking about it. By Monday, the restaurants were empty kind of thing. And so Tuesday, we brought them all in and we said, look, we think this is going to happen. What is this going to look like? We don't know. Bali's obviously can do to-go pizza. We're not sure what the restrictions are going to be, whether we're going to be allowed to do indoor dining or what. Um, There's but, a lot of unknowns. Yeah. Because like, no one knew the rules. To yeah. COVID. And basically, what I had to tell my staff and what I told them that day was – Guys, I'm terribly sorry to tell you this, but somewhere in the next few weeks, we're probably going to have to lay off a good portion of you. And what we need to figure out now, like if I basically said to them, if you're in a situation where you've got health issues or you've got kids or you're, you absolutely can't live without a job, I said, we're going to need some staff to stay on. Um, but if you can go on unemployment or you can get by or whatever it is. It was kind of just like, if you really have to have this job, come speak to your specific manager and we'll start getting notes. And so that was, I think, a two o'clock or three o'clock meeting. 
we finished at about four. I remember I was crying. All my staff's giving me hugs, and it was like, this is going to happen. Uh, and then someone's like, hey, Josh, turn the volume up. And it was government McMaster saying that effective immediately, they were shutting down all the restaurants for anything. It's like 9 p.m. that night. So we we closed uh, Trapdoor that night, straight down. We didn't feel like our food is going to travel well to go um, to that day, that whole stuff. And then Bali's, we went to to-go orders um, only. And in the borough, we went to family-style meals. But then we had, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 worth of inventory of perishable food. So we started having to truck that across to the borough so that we could, you know, the first month we were just making casseroles for people to buy with food that we had in the they were just pouring out of the freezer or the refrigerator. Not to waste it, yeah. So it was a very big management thing. But yeah, that day, March 27th, I laid off 90 people. We went from 110 to about 15. That still gets me. It's yeah. rough. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, because you didn't know when you were going to be able to hire him back. Like it we was, had no idea. It and was, hey, we have to let you go now. We have no idea right. when we're going to be able to bring you back. And we did right. We, we filed as a company for the unemployment so that we could help them through that process, which was great. Um, and then it was just terrible because when it did start coming back and the government was giving them all this free money, then you call them up and say, like, oh, no, I've got asthma. I can't come out. And it's like, <laughs> so oh, it, it was yeah. probably so a lot of them didn't come back. It was what, yeah. June, May or June before yeah. you, everything kind of started to get back. But then there was that kind of staffing crisis of. That was probably the worst thing that came out. We were starting to pick up and we were like, yes, we survived. And we literally were like, we survived. Yeah. Because um, you were probably week to week. I we mean, didn't all survive. I had a team, my management team of six were not only six of the best people I have on my team, they're also six of my closest friends. And this brought us together even more because we were every day, yeah. like surviving for, for our lives. Um, and that puts a lot of pressure on a lot of other things, but... Just through it, I lost half of my team. Half of those six quit and friendships destroyed forever um, because it got real ugly. Um, but, it, you know, I lost my marriage. I lost all sorts of stuff. It, it's just, it was insane. But it was a very unique and interesting journey. And when we got to the end of it, we were like, we made it. We survived. Yeah. We're going to get through this. And then the staffing crisis hit. And I told all my team at the beginning, I was like, guys, 2020 is going to be tough, but 2021 is going to be way harder than anything we see in 2020. Because how'd you, know, how'd you know that? Because I knew reopening three restaurants. I know how hard it is to open one restaurant from mm. scratch. Now, granted, you know, Bali's and Trapdoor, the recipes are all there. There's a lot less. Right. But I knew we were going to have trouble getting people back. I knew we were going to have trouble getting people back into the restaurants because people are still paranoid. You knew the sales were going to be there right away. You just didn't know no, how to No, sales are not there. <laughs> I mean, the sales came back for Trapdoor, yeah. but we're still losing money hand over fist at the other two restaurants. Mm. Um, greater than Trapdoor can even provide. So we're, we're living off the PPP money and it's burning up pretty quickly. So, so this was an interesting time. You know, for Roy and I, we were in restaurants Mm-hmm. in May of 2020 and had been for years. But that the kind of the, for us, we realized that closing a tab 
in this environment, yes, with the contact becoming such a conversation and the, the limited capacity, and honestly, the staffing piece. That's brilliant. Nobody was thinking of the staffing piece. Nah. And so we, we just kind of started, it kind of one of those, we'll figure it out, let's build it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were the first restaurant owner that we went to with Tabby. Yeah. And I, I'll never forget the conversation we had. But what was it that made you kind of say, no, I'll, I'll let you guys, I'll take a chance and let you guys kind of just come play with this POS system. And The POS system part was the only part that made me nervous whatsoever. Because, yeah. And that's why I directed you straight to POSTEC and said, you guys, the only way I'll do this is if you go and reach Which, out to thank you, Ethan by the way. and those guys. Ethan yeah. is fantastic. Well, And I knew yeah. it would make it easier on your yeah. end too, trying to navigate that on your own. We've done it. We, we, had, we brought in Digital Pour as our beer menu. So we had to integrate that with them. And I just, the amount of work and the amount of issues and problems that come up with. Um, and then there's so many, like all the credit card, you know, security systems and right. firewalls that you have to have legally that can get you in so much trouble. That that was the part. So again, without knowing that Ethan and Poztech and all those guys were involved, I felt very comfortable. I've worked with those guys for 20 years now. So I, I felt very comfortable that they would protect me on that end. Outside of that, it was just a cool, cool app that you guys developed. And I had my questions and I had my concerns with certain aspects of it. And I knew that I could help you guys navigate through those things. Um, so you helped a lot. <laughs> well, it's so and, and I digress a little bit, but I think it will answer you a question as to why I did want to work with you guys. So we have pretty successfully over the years sponsored three different sports teams. When we bought Barley's, we inherited a club soccer team. It's Barley soccer team, and they played against Wild Wing and all these other restaurants. That's all it is. They don't ask for anything. We don't pay them any money. They come in after the game every week, and they get two free pizzas and four pitches of beer. That's what they get every week for 25 years. They've been doing this. Same guys still play on the team. It is. It's a very old soccer team. It is, man. We don't win as much as we used to. But they're part of the Bali's family and they're part of part of the whole, you know, it's just a tradition, right? Um, so we sponsor them with two large pizzas and four pitches. And they stay and drink way more and they tip really well. So it's good for the staff. It doesn't cost me much. Then, you know, I'm from Australia, so rugby is a big passion of mine. And they tried to recruit me when I was, you know, before I was even married to come play with them. And I went and watched one game and saw the amount of crutches and <laughs> things. And I, I watched the level of the refing. And they were playing against each other. It was their A team and their B team or the old boys. And they were killing each other. And I was like, I'm never stepping foot on that field. But they were good guys. And they were, they were trying to glow a club. Their club's 50 years old this year. So it's, it's an old established club. Same guys. And Still playing. No, <laughs> different guys. <laughs> but a lot of the old boys, you know, took over the governorship of the team. And I said, let's pair up and we'll sponsor you. And the first year we sponsored them was an absolute disaster. It was, it was like, <laughs> like cavemen up there. And I'm like, look, guys, I get that you can do that at Fitzpatrick's <laughs> and the Irish pub and all these other places that have sponsored you. I said, but there's a reason I sponsor you for a year or two. Because you're asshole. <laughs> I said, so you got to turn it down. I said, there's two things. Get it under control. Respect my business. Otherwise, I'll kick you out and you'll lose the sponsorship. And I said, and this 20 or 30 bucks you tipped my bartender last week, that doesn't ever happen again. And still to this day, they walk around with a hat and like, 
slapping each other, put money in, put your money in, put your money in. <laughs> but again, that, that sponsorship is they, they bring the home and away team to the team they play against. So we're talking about Charlotte, Atlanta, all these other teams. So they awesome. come in and yeah. eat and have the fellowship side after the game and drink, and they're still loud and obnoxious. We hide them upstairs. Um, so for the longest time, that was just really a food, just like 20 pizzas and some pasta. Um, but then that turned into a very small financial commitment as well about five years ago. Um, so that's that's a minuscule commitment each year, and it's helping a great club that's 50 years old, and I just love the sport of rugby. So that brings me to my cycling team. We had a cycling team through Barley's that we sponsored that then turned into the Trapdoor Cycling Team and has been ever since. So it's, that sponsorship's going on nine years now, probably. Um, that cycling team, I mean, I drive around, I see my Trapdoor kids all around town. That's a significant financial investment I put into that. It was four or five grand a year I pay to sponsor this team. But when it was just a Bali's team, they all looked at me and like, why the hell are you sponsoring a cycling team of all things? And I was like, honestly, because you guys are a bunch of young kids that are very talented, and I've been there. I was a professional snowboarder 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and I know how hard it is to get people to support you and have your back. And that, to me, is the main reason I sponsor these guys is because it's something I needed back in the day, and so I can give back to them. So, again, I think it's when you go back to the entre- entrepreneurial side is, yeah, you guys had this great concept. If it was, if it was a terrible product, I would have just laughed and gone. It wasn't just the product. It was you guys as people. Uh, I know you met with Travis, my manager, prior to me, and he came up. He was like, dog, these guys are cool, and their product's <laughs> cool. Like, he's like, I don't care if you do it or not, but you got to have lunch with these guys. And I was like, well, if you're that excited about it, I'll, I'll go hear what they got to say. Yeah. So it came with a good reference, and then when you pulled up, showed him the slide, I was like, Shh. and all you want to do is use my system? Don't look cool. Let's go. So again, I think it was part of that. You're a group of guys that are trying to do something with your lives that's really cool and awesome. And who doesn't want to help that? Especially when I've been through so many times before. So yeah. So I think I mean, that was really one, the main reason. I mean, thank you. I yeah, think that, thank so you. that needs to go. Yeah. You know, that needs to be said right away. Two, I am curious. You, know, your first sponsorship as. Uh, a young, a young lad. I mean, you, you, I remember, you remember, you probably remember that first. Like somebody took a chance on Josh Beebe yeah. right, and said, Hey, you probably won't. Like I, I could imagine that conversation for you at that age and be like, wow, somebody believes in me yep. enough to sponsor me for this event. Right. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's it. And that's, I've been very successful in life. Um, I've done a lot of great things. I don't know if I will be in the next two years. We'll see what happens, how this all plays out. But it's, yes, you don't get anywhere in life without people taking a chance on you or helping you or, you know, I'm not, I I tell a lot of people, I'm not going to do your job for you, but I'll be there for a sounding board. So like I said, when my buddy up in New York, Scotty calls me and he's opening a golf gym, he's got questions. I'm going to give him all the answers in the world. And I'm going to help him as best I can, scare him in the right direction. When I have other friends come in and like, I, you know, well, you guys, I want to help and do that because I, I like that process. But I've also had other companies. I've had some distilleries in different places come in when Trapdoor was really starting to become successful. And they're like, oh, you sell absinthe. 
So we're going to make it absinthe and we want to put the trapdoor logo on it and we'll call it the trapdoor absinthe and we're going to make it specially for you. And I'm like, no, not at all. <laughs> and they're like, well, why not? Like, it's really cool. And it's like, it's helping your brand and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, it's not helping my brand at all. It's helping your brand. I said, it's helping your brand. You're yeah. trying to piggyback off my work to make your brand better and then turn around. And if, yeah. the, if the product's terrible, it's going to, be a bad yeah, they, they fade to me. the background, and it's just. And then I'm the guy that's absent. selling a terrible product. So, yeah, um, yeah, I got to believe in the product, which I definitely did with you guys. I think the the platform of the social aspect of it, mixed in with the tab aspect of it, uh, the ability to find your friends on a Friday without having to call them all and be like, "Where you at?" Just pick it up. I'm like, "Oh, they're all down the road. I'll just walk down there." Um, you know, I, I told all the people that I've talked to about Tabby, it's almost like you've got Twitter and then the tab aspect and then all the dating websites. <laughs> I don't know which is the spot right and left. <laughs> well, no, yeah, but that's true. or whatever. Yeah. But it's it's got all that tied into one. So, yeah. Well, Josh, thanks for being here today. We're unfortunately out of time. Absolutely. Um, but look forward to what we can we can do with, with Barley's in the next month and then... What, what the three of us can do as, as business owners together in the next year or two. Absolutely. So I look forward to the journey. Right.